Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. A couple of housekeeping notes before we get started this week. You may have noticed that we removed from manpodcast.com all images of the site Twombly works discussed on last week's show. Yesterday, the Twombly Foundation sent us a cease and desist regarding those images. With the exception of the cropped image used in the show's banner and on SoundCloud and on our Facebook page, we believe we are covered by fair use. In nearly 20 years of working in digital media, after running thousands of images under fair use law, this is the first such letter that I have received. Fair use is widely recognized by all, well, almost all, of the field. Still, we're a small podcast, and they're a multi-million dollar foundation. We don't have the money to fight them, and they know it. We took down the images. As you can imagine, that was our last Twombly-related program. Next, it's been a while since I asked listeners to rate and review us on iTunes or their podcatcher of choice. Those ratings and reviews are important factors in podcatcher algorithms, algorithms that determine how many people find new podcasts. Please give us a five-star review and tell a friend. And if you haven't checked us out on Pandora or Spotify podcasts yet, have a look. Both sites invited us onto their platforms. Now on to the show. This week, Amy Sherald. The Spelman College Museum of Fine Art is showing Amy Sherald an exhibition of recent paintings. It's on view through May 18th. The exhibition was organized by the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis and curated by its director, Lisa Melandry. The exhibition catalog was published by CAM. Amazon offers it for $16. For 15 years, the Baltimore-based Amy Sherald has been making portraits of African Americans. Initially, her work included a touch of magic, but in the last few years, she's pared her approach down to a smooth, intense realism. While her canvases have typically featured average folk, last year she became famous for her 2018 portrait of former First Lady Michelle Obama. It's in the National Portrait Gallery collection. Fun little side note, Cheryl did her undergraduate work at Clark Atlanta University, but took her painting classes at Spelman. On the second segment, Metropolitan Museum of Art curator Iria Candela joins me to discuss Lucio Fontana on The Threshold. But first, Amy Cheryl, after a break. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Alan Ruppersberg, Intellectual Property 1968-2018. This major retrospective offers a chance to experience the pioneering artist's work in unprecedented breadth and depth. Ruppersberg's first comprehensive U.S. survey in over 30 years, Intellectual Property includes more than 120 works made over the past 50 years, from early assemblage sculptures and photo works combining text and image to drawings and collages. Recent immersive installations are shown alongside Ruppersburg's groundbreaking environments, Al's Cafe and Al's Grand Hotel, participatory projects that help put L.A. on the map as a center for conceptual art. On view February 10th through May 12th at The Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free for good. 
in John Waters' Indecent Exposure, the trash auteur behind Pink Flamingos and Hairspray shares 25 years of his visual art. The blockbuster retrospective features more than 160 provocative and wickedly funny works born from Waters' personal obsessions with celebrity, crime, and lowbrow culture. Don't miss your last chance to catch this exhibition at its second and final stop, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. It's on view through April 28th alongside the photography survey Peter Hujar, Speed of Life, and a new site-specific mural by Bay Area artist Alicia McCarthy. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Amy Sherald, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. How are you? Good. Let's start early in your career. And and early on, you made, at least in your, your post-MFA career, you made paintings that incorporated magic and things that were kind of magically real. I read an, an, a, f- a fairly early career interview in which I, I think you even used that, that phrase that something was, was magically real. What was the appeal to that... I don't know, subject or surrealism inflected approach. What was what was the appeal of it back then? Well, I know that I was looking for what it is that I was going to paint. And that year I had been doing research and I had done different work in graduate school and I knew it wasn't the work that was going to make a career. So I went to explore and the genesis of the work was really the movie Big Fish because I saw that film and I, you know, listened to these stories that this father told his son about giants and all kinds of crazy characters. And it just got me thinking how, you know, as a painter, I had an opportunity to create stories that are extricated from the dominant historical narrative. And so I started kind of with the magical realism in the sense, because I was kind of emulating what I had seen in the movie in the beginning because it's what had, you know, created the spark. But I think like maybe five or six paintings in, I started to realize that it was that these people that I was looking for and finding and painting, you know, weren't existing in some fantasy world, but they were, they were real. And so, you know, my focus shift to kind of working within the genre of American realism or considering that, as painting everyday American people. There is a 2009 painting um, that I wonder if you think is maybe a bridge between what you're describing and, and what came next. That's the rabbit in the hat. It's a gentleman wearing a lime and yellow striped jacket, bright blue bow tie, and he's holding a hat with a bright blue hat band. And there's a rabbit who is, you know, not quite he's not quite pulling the rabbit out of his hat. He's just kind of hanging out there with the rabbit. Was that a pivotal painting? I can't remember whether I did that one first or well-prepared and maladjusted, the girl with the polka dot shirt on with the big bow. I consider that one my pivotal piece because it's when I really started to move away from like kind of costumey props and things like that. And so I guess that painting, the rabbit in the hat, was really about you know, the the reason I had gone to the library in the first place and, but ended up checking out Big Fish was because I was looking for and researching, you know, just other things that were, like I said, outside of the narrative. And I was looking on a book or anything about like black musicians and I really couldn't find anything. That piece, I think, just really came from 
from that. So yeah, not so magical, not pulling the rabbit out of the hat, but the metaphor is there. Well-prepared and maladjusted is from 2008. One other painting from about that period I wanted to ask about is Hangman from, from 2007. It is anomalous or nearly anomalous. I, you know, I haven't seen everything you've ever done within the oeuvre in that the figure in the painting is, is a little bit vaporous and he's, he's, he's not facing us. He's looking to the right and his eyes are closed and he's surrounded by three suggestions of figures kind of from a painterly approach looks like he was an experiment yeah it was <laughs> I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and after getting out of grad school and having to move home to take care of my family I hadn't painted for like those three and a half four years and I started back with the work that I was doing in grad school that kind of had I'd started in college and it was really kind of lame and I knew it was kind of lame, and so I had to get out of my comfort zone. I ended up painting over the image. And so, like, that kind of speckled technique was something that I came, uh, came to be in grad school just by accident. And so, you know, after working on that painting for a while, I covered it up. And I still hadn't gotten to the place of, of you know, what I was going to be making, like that they were going to be gray, scale, or anything like that. I was just, you know, again, like playing around with ideas and that one didn't work. Like, I can't remember what I was thinking, but I knew I realized like, I can't, this isn't going to like carry me through a career or something like that. I, I kind of used the stripes for a few paintings in just, you know, thinking about some time that I spent in Sarasota, Florida, Florida at the Ringling Museum and really got into the idea of spectacle and the circus. So yeah, he was really, really a transitional piece. And it's, you know, it's one of those pieces that exists, but like, I'd rather not show, but it's like part of the story. So, <laughs> well, what's really, you know, as, as, as an historian and, and sort of art historian, I'm always fascinated by kind of these early, I don't know, they're more than head fakes. They're, they're, you know, you kind of head in one direction and then maybe you spin out of it. Both Hangman from 07 and the fairest of the not so fair from 08, in which a woman is wearing a ball gown, holding a mirror and has what looks like feathers hiding her eyes they're, they're both paintings so when we think of 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 your kind of mature style now we think of a figure looking right out at us and we'll talk a little more about that a little later but these are two paintings in which it seems like you questioned whether or not that direct address was the right fit for you and so was this when you were trying to decide how you wanted to have your figures engage with the viewer or or the viewer engage with your figures I think so. I mean, honestly, in the beginning, I was just like trying to figure out how to make a cool painting, you know, and like make something that I liked, you know, I would see stuff. I think I was at my, my mentor and godfather's friend's house and he had a book on dancers in Brazil or something like that. And it was like illustrated in watercolor and they had feathers over their faces. And I was like, that's kind of cool. You know, like maybe I can use that. So I was just looking for ways to, to, I was just, yeah, like really figuring it out. Like some of it, I mean, I know people like to think that you're like, you know, having this really intense intellectual experience while you're making the work. But I mean, a lot of it's just about the palette and the aesthetic. And for me, like the story, the narrative and the discourse comes way later because I try not to think about those things in the midst of making the work. It just kind of doesn't, it doesn't work well. There was a program you did at the National Gallery of Art a couple of years ago with uh, Aaron Cristoval, who's now at the Hammer. I don't think she was 
full time at the Hammer back then. She's a curator, of course. And the two of you talked about how your work when you were in grad school, you went to the Maryland Institute College of Art in, in Baltimore, was, to use your word, ambiguous. And I think the way you meant that, as, as you two went on to talk about it, is that you had never painted a figure that a viewer um, might instantly recognize as being black. That, that inevitably made me curious, because I haven't seen those paintings. What were you painting in the early aughts that was so ambiguous? What was keeping people from recognizing the figures as, as, as being black people? They were super weird and now kind of probably creepy. Nude, bald-headed self-portraits because when I was in college I couldn't find anybody to pose for me so I ended up posing for myself mm -hmm. like having somebody take a picture of me for the painting and so they were in a way like science fiction even though I was wasn't even really into science fiction at all but I had come up with this crazy story about these alien women and so one of them was my complexion and I'm you know fair one of them was um like a raw sienna color, like a brownish, like orange, but so not, not a natural skin color. And the other one was like a yellow ochre. And so I think by the time I got to grad school, they had all become the same color as me. But yeah, so, so in a way, like they were ambiguous, like you couldn't tell what the painter's gender or what they were trying to say conceptually. They were kind of odd nerdrum-esque and Rembrandt kind of-esque because that's what those things that I was looking at back then and like putting a lot of paint on the canvas and, you know, making things like the, the texture was really important. So I would like put texture on the base of the canvas before I painted the figure, just all kinds of corny stuff. It was just really, it was just really corny. Did, did your instructors at in grad school or your colleagues in grad school or even Odd Nerdrum, um, who you later traveled and spent three or four months working in the studio of, point you to that ambiguity or your approach to skin and skin color as being an issue that you should address and solve within the work? Or did you just kind of get there on your own by accident? I just got there on my own. I mean, I think I was just making what I knew how to make. And I really hadn't considered concept at that point because I was still really just trying to figure out what the heck I was doing. And so I really, even when I started the you know the body of work that I'm known for now I was the decision was because it looked cool in the beginning but then I realized you know I always say that in hindsight when you look back at stuff I thought that I think I had a fear of the work being marginalized and only being able to be employed in one way I knew that work that 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 art history can't be written without has to be relevant within the art historical narrative but then also you know, be able to, to speak to all kinds of different people. And I think that was really important to me for that reason. So the grayscale, in hindsight, you know, allowed me to do that. But I wasn't exactly thinking about that when I was ma making the paintings that color. Your, your reference to grayscale is kind of the word that has emerged, probably thanks to you, for the skin tone in your work. You've described it as coming from you're mixing black and Naples yellow on a palette and, and, and it working for you. As you became comfortable with that color, as it seemed the right fit for what you wanted to do, what you wanted to say, how you wanted your figures to look, did you come to find a literary or art historical source for it? Or 
did it never get there? Did it, did it just work? What do you mean, literary source? I've often wondered if Romaine Brooks was a source for, for some of your skin tones. Her paintings are full of, of figures who are posed against kind of ambiguous backgrounds, figures who are not pushed up against the picture, picture plane like yours are. But her skin tones run toward kind of a, a, a grayish. And I don't know, I, as, as I came to wonder if... Okay, yeah, I know one painting of her. But honestly, like, it's... I wasn't looking at anything when I made this work. You know, I was out of grad school, but it's it's crazy to say because I feel like these are things that I, I should have learned in grad school, but I didn't know who Carrie James Marshall was when I started these paintings, and I didn't know who Barclay Hendricks was either. So when I discovered them, like probably six paintings in, I was like, wow, like their work is, is kind of similar to mine. I mean, Bentley's more than probably Carrie's, even though people tend to relate them because of the, the black to gray. Yeah, I, I just, I wasn't looking at reference references and, you know, I always made it a point not to. Like if, if I was looking at artwork, I wasn't making work. And if I was making work, I wasn't looking at artwork, which means like, you know, going from Baltimore to New York to, New York to look for, I mean, outside of Big Fish, you know, it's really, it was really also about processing retrospective, which, you know, was a very profound experience and it's a really beautiful work, but then it, it also helped me understand that, that there was room for another kind of conversation around blackness. And so it, that was like the jump off point and then watching that movie and like kind of putting those two things together. I want to talk a little bit about the ground on which you paint figures. You described it earlier, the, the kind of late aughts work as kind of a bit of a spackled ground, which it is, of course, you know, kind of Frank Bowling meets monochrome, if you will. And over the years, it's gotten more and more monochrome. And the more monochrome it is, the more it pushes the figure or figures in your paintings toward the picture plane and toward the viewer. So it, it, it both flattens space within the painting and eliminates space between the viewer and the figure in your painting, which is, is, I mean, it really activates the paintings in a really kind of direct and exciting way. So were you conscious of eliminating the spackle and becoming more and more monochrome, and why did the monochrome work for you? The speckling just stopped working. I mean, it, I didn't really plan it, but there's the, a painting that I did of a girl with a cardigan sweater on a white shirt, and she has on like a pleated royal bluish skirt. And I guess it was a pattern on the sweater, sweater were these little flowers. And I always start my backgrounds first. And so the background is completely finished before I draw the image on the painting, because I don't like the way that like the paint meets the edges and like pushes stuff forward or backward based off of like how many layers are there. It didn't work for her, and I kind of had a panic attack. And because I'm a Virgo and I give myself all these rules that I had to follow, even though they were my rules, it's like I was like, I can't break this rule. Like, what what does it mean that I don't paint speckles anymore? It's like this really kind of stupid existential crisis. So I ended up doing it because it just stopped working, and I'm not really sure why. It just started to feel, I think, unnecessary. It just started to feel unnecessary. Is there something about the way the monochrome works pictorially that that you really that you really like? I mean, I think in general that the that it allows the viewer to really engage with the person in the portrait, and you know, my people are very present in the in the in these paintings, and they know 
that you are looking at them and they're looking back at you. I think there's, you know, there's no mess around them. There's no context or anything like that. It's just really about them and what their eyes are saying and, and, and how, you know, and, and the viewer's emotional reaction to each person, each space. You, you were talking about the space, you know, where your figure or the garment your figure is wearing meets the, the background. Why and, and, and how you like that space to be and look and feel? What does that look and feel, and, and how do you want it to look to the viewer? Do you, want, do you want the figure to look like the figure is slightly projected off of the monochrome, or that just that there's a solid mass of, of, of color and moment there? I mean, I, 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 would, I guess sitting off, I mean, a lot of these questions are answered in my head in the way that it's just a feeling that I, I look at it and I know what, what is right and what isn't right. I definitely don't want the background to creep over onto them. I prefer them to be sitting on top of it. Like I think the foreground, middle ground is like really important for me for that reason. And I don't think it's really for like 3D effect or anything. I think I just, I just prefer it to be that way. I like the way that it looks and it just makes sense to my eye and my aesthetic. But yeah, I think I, I think about that less than I do the figure really. And I just really get into making these, making their faces and just, you know, each image for me that I put out in the world is, and it's like, I'm, I feel like I'm passing out flyers to different museums, you know, like I was filling up, you know, spaces and they become part of a, you know, they become a critique to a narrative, basically, to a, mm -hmm. especially the American art canon. There's one, one more uh, question on backgrounds. There is uh, one painting, maybe maybe more, but one I know of in which you broke the rule, that is Planes, Rockets, and the Spaces in Between, which includes, as the title suggests, rockets. And, and, and you know, the smoke, smoke's not the right word, vapor of, of, of the, the thing taking off. Why did you choose to break the rule there? And did you decide it worked? Will you return to breaking the rule? I mean, I've been waiting to make that painting for years. I had the canvas made like three years before I began it, but I couldn't figure out what I wanted it to be. I just knew that I wanted to explore that and make a painting that was, you know, had had some kind of landscape. And I think for me, you know, they'll always have uh, a low horizon line and lots of sky. So they're, they're still similar to the paintings. In that sense, where they're just, they're very simple. There's not a lot going on. I've been looking at a lot of Charles Ebbett photographs and really enjoying how the, the photographs of the, the men on the construction beams, like how they cut the space up into different planes. And, you know, so it was, it was great to do. I want to do it again for sure. I don't think I'm going to start making bigger paintings unless they make sense and so you know you might it'll be kind of sporadic I might make two or three a year if it makes sense to make them but I just don't want to make them big for the sake of making them extra big with extra characters characters if it's not you know really compelling. Planes Rockets is about five and a half feet by a little over eight feet I'm not good at math and I'm looking at inches <laughs> uh, you said you wanted to do a landscape why? There's still no signifiers there. You know, it's like it's not on a street corner with a stop sign or, you know, like a hopper, like in a cafe or something like that. It's still really a quiet place that you're met by a gaze. So, I mean, when you walk up to that painting, you're 
you could be made to feel as if you're interrupting something or, you know, she's looking back for you to come join. But I think it also looks like once you take that step inside of that world, you'll be great too. It just, I think the, the way that it came out, it, it really works in that the world is, is similarly real yet not real at the same time as the figures are because they're, they're great. In painting after painting, you make textiles, the clothes people wear, or at least the clothes you put on them in your paintings, a scene of action. This is true of Planes Rockets. It's true of kind of just about everything else you've done in the last decade. How and why did did clothes, textiles become something that interested you or something that you came to re- realize could be so important within your work? I mean, I guess in the beginning... And and uh, for me, the main reason is that there's there's two things happening in the painting, and that's the clothes and the skin. And so they become the clothes become important in that way. Sometimes I'm really intentful about the narrative that the clothes are telling, and that's basically because I'll come across a piece that, uh, like last week, I ordered a sweater off of eBay that had kind of like a gridded. It was like four or six squares that were gridded out. And inside of the squares were these images of houses that were cut by the lines in the grid. And so that was a pattern or an image that I was really drawn to and it'll become a part of the painting. So, you know, I haven't really figured out what that means if anything, but I like the sweater and it, you know, and it works. So it's sometimes it's not, it's just about, you know, the color or what it is that I find that I feel like I could translate into a painting that will look great. But sometimes you're also making a pointed art historical or socio-historical reference, right? Maybe. Give me an example of one that you think I'm doing that. Well, there's one, Monet's Garden. Yeah. But see, like, the dress was that dress, and then as I'm thinking of titles, I'm like, oh, that'd be a cool title. And you know, so I didn't start the painting thinking about Monet's Garden at all. Like, I finished the painting, and then I'm, like, looking for a name, and I painted flowers so I google garden and I start doing a a search and then I come across an image and I'm like that's that's perfect like it works for that so it's not I don't think anything I ever do is intentful in the beginning of the work because it's too it ends up being too contrived there is within your textiles if, if if that's the right phrase a really sophisticated understanding of of color and how different colors play off each other. One great example from 2012 is a painting called Equilibrium. Um, It's now in the U.S. Embassy in Dakar in Senegal. Tell me about the figure's dress in in that painting and how those patterns, which I might argue are full of kind of art historical winks and nods, worked for you. That painting was the second one that I did. I did it after Hangman. The campuses are both the same size, and that was when I really committed to the grayscale on that work. And I photographed that piece in my backyard in Baltimore, in Bolton Hill, in a house that I was living in, and they had the clothesline dryers, like the metal rails. And so I had her stand between those two, and she had on a skirt. The skirt didn't look like that, but she had on you know, a white tank top and that skirt. And then I needed to figure out a pattern and I thought about quilting. I'm not sure I had seen or knew about G's bin then, but it just seemed like 
a natural thing to do because the skirt had so much space to fill up and I didn't want the, you know, I didn't want just flowers or something like that. I mean, I think it's the same reason I was drawn to the the pattern on the, the dress that we chose for the first lady portrait. It's because it was more than just a random pattern. Like there was ways to to uh, connect it to an historical narrative. It's a, it's a pattern that also recalls for me a little bit of Jasper Johns, a little bit of um, early Kusama dot paintings. It's full of cultural signifiers and references that are not monocultural, if you will. I, I think that's a biology term that I probably should never use again, but you know. You know, another, I, I, could, I could ask you about some of these, these, your textile choices for days, but another one that strikes me as daring, in pictorially daring, is what you did in A Clear Unspoken Granted Magic, a 2017 painting. It, black and white are hard for any painter to work with. This is about the second painting um, in a year or so in which you not only used black and white, but you, you make it work. Do you remember the skirt the figure is wearing in that painting? And can you detail how you made this very, very kind of strong, hard edge-ish skirt work against the, the the scarf the figure is wearing, which is has kind of red and green flowers on it? The skirt that she had on was houndstooth, but it was like the tiniest houndstooth. I just love working with black and white. I mean, I think it's something that I have to remember not to use for every painting because I love the background blue. I love that blue and I love black and white against that. And I think, you know, there's probably one, two, at least two paintings and then Michelle's portrait as well, where, you know, they're similar in that way. But yeah, it took me a while to figure out what scarf to match with that skirt. And I just remember like oftentimes Cruz's website called Operandi. I think it's called Operandi. Modem operandi, I believe. And it's a website for designer clothes. And they usually have some super fabulous patterns and stuff like that. And I remember looking at Gucci scarves and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I came across a pattern that worked. And then I ran it by my friend Dana, who's an interior designer. And so she's really good. The way that she designs is, like, similar to how I think when it comes to placing different patterns next to each other in a way that they work. I was a little unsure about it and then I got her approval so I went with it. But yeah, it was it was just through searching online images of different kinds of scarves and trying to figure out a pattern that worked because that outfit I really it looked nothing like the painting and I was really like having to make it up as I went to figure out, you know, as I proceeded with the painting to figure out what the next step was going to be. The, the other black and white painting that you made about the same time, 2016, is Listen, You a Wonder, You a City of a Woman, You Got a Geography of Your Own. And it's a woman wearing a black and white dress with black and white blooming flowers on it. She's holding a purse in front of her. And what's, I think, unique about this painting in your oeuvre is not only is the woman wearing a hat, but you've included a shadow, a shadow over her face. The, the textile is great. The way the textile and her pose and the purse play with each other is great. The hat itself has more character than a lot of people I know. But that shadow is is really, really gripping and kind of keeps the black and white of the dress from overpowering the rest of the painting. And you don't do a lot of shadows, so I wonder why. So, so why did you do one there? Well, I, when I started that piece, 
you know, the dress was red and white. I changed it. It wasn't working. So I oftentimes changed the color. And she didn't have a hat on either. And for some reason, that wasn't working. And so I remember calling her back, which I don't often do. I called her back and I was like, I need to take you take another picture of you. And I prefer to photograph outside. It's not always easy to do for people in the middle of winter, but that was the middle of summer. And so I really prefer the high contrast shadows and things like that. And so that day was just really bright and sunny. And I worked on that shadow because I knew it was like exactly what the painting needed with the hat and it worked and it was really fun to paint. And uh, it's still one of my favorite paintings for that reason. Last kind of textile question. Your painting Mother and Child features a woman in a plain white t-shirt. This is going to sound like I'm making a joke, but I'm really not. Was it hard to leave the t-shirt just white? Was that an interesting challenge? No, because when I saw those two at a barbecue, that's exactly what they had on. Which, to be clear, you don't do that very often. Usually you attire. You Often when you photograph people, I've read, uh, you, will, you put them in different things than they're wearing. Yeah, for the, I would say 60% of the time, for the most part, it's what they're wearing, but I change it up. Like, for example, Innocent You, Innocent Me, the young man holding the ice cream cone. The sweatshirt was like red, blue, and gray, and he didn't have a camouflage t-shirt on. You know, it's like I kind of enhance enhance what they're wearing to make to make a more, you know, beautiful painting in my opinion. But for them it was like really simple and the hat was the pattern in a way and it, it didn't really need much. So I, I honestly I don't I don't think about it that hard. It's like what works for each painting works works for each painting. You know, so I don't try to add a pattern just because, you know, or I don't subtract it just because it's like it it's each individual painting has its own way of being made and so it's it's just about that one and not the group when i'm making it you mentioned innocent you innocent me young man wearing a camouflage t-shirt with some comics references and a red and, uh, and a yellow and white open zip sweatshirt he's wearing a hoodie is that a reference to the history of violence in america in the 2010s yeah, I think it's it's my way of 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 thinking through thinking through that. That was the same year that Michael Brown was shot, and I think you know that painting and All American are the two that I used to really process for me. And my work is is very non confrontational, and so am I. So I tend to go in a different direction when it comes to making work that's political. Or, or could be seen as that. And so those, those two were, yeah, definitely thinking about my Americanism in that, in that year and with the exit of Barack Obama and realizing that I felt more American those eight years than I ever did in my whole life. I had a different kind of sense of ownership. Yeah, and the, t- and the title for Innocent You Incident Me, like it, it basically says it all for that painting. Uh, all American, the painting you referenced a moment ago, the full title is... What's precious inside of him does not care to be known by the mind in ways that diminish its presence. All-American from 2017, a young man wearing what is a black cowboyish hat and an American flag-ish button-up shirt with a spectacular belt buckle. The poses of, of your figures, do you 
have kind of a mental art historical source book of poses? Do you let people pose themselves? Do you direct them? Do you totally change their poses from the photographs you take to when you get them onto canvas? How does that work? I mean, for me, I guess that's the hardest part is that the portraits are super simple and there's only so much you can do, right? So it's like I try to build tension with the hands and fingers and things like that. But sometimes I just have to accept the fact that they're just going to be in a missionary pose because nothing else is, is exactly working. The pose never changes from the way that I photograph them. And, I, and if it takes me an hour, I photograph them until they're comfortable enough where I can get something and I let them move around in ways that they are comfortable until that, you know, they become comfortable or they kind of like sink into a position that works. But, um, yeah, I think if I had to say that one thing was really difficult about making my work, it's just yeah, accepting the fact that, that you can only do so much with your hands and your arms and can't like, I can't like put them up in the air or do anything crazy because then it completely changes the paintings, like no jazz hands or anything like that. Sometimes your figures could be standing or lying down. Are you always photographing them and painting them, thinking about them as standing up? Does that matter? If laying down makes sense for work, then that will definitely happen. So I'm not opposed to anything, but the individual portraits work, and I think they have a formula, and that formula really works, and so that's probably something that I'm not going to change. But as these bigger paintings start popping up, then those are things that I would that I would play with and, you know, trying to create possibly maybe like some tradition American scenes where they might be laying on the ground or, you know, not standing, kneeling, sitting cross leg or something like that. So I'm not I'm not uh, opposed to it at all. I just it just hasn't happened yet. You know, I, I thought of that because you're painting uh, your 2015 painting Saint Woman seems to remind me very much of a Wyeth pose. And then as I looked through Wyeth's, I couldn't find it. And so realized it wasn't. <laughs> and then I thought of Christina's world, and it sort of is. Except for, it's, I mean, you know, it kind of has that feel. And, and so I guess that's why I, and, and in Christina's world, the figure is on the ground. And, and that also got me wondering how much you borrow poses from art history. I mean, I'm so busy working, Tyler, like I'm working all the time. And and I think that the busier I've gotten over the past six years, the further away I've gotten from art history in the sense of like using it as reference. I think the only time I really thought about it was I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't making work like somebody else. And that's the only time I really thought about it. But I feel like I remember from my art history class, I remember the artists that I love. But I think that my curator friends and my collective friends are the ones that tend to know it the most because they have time to sit around and like, you know, stay on top of this stuff. But my memory is poor now, so I don't mm -hmm. remember much. And so I don't, I don't, I like to rely on my own, on my own wit too, you know? So it's part, I think it's, it's probably pride in a sense of like, you know, I never wanted anything to be given to me. I always wanted to work for it. So I think in and my approach to my work, it's the same thing. You know, I don't want to, I mean, I tell uh, students that I work with, it's like, yeah, go out and look at work because you'll recognize your genius in that work, but it's not for you to recreate, you know, it's just for you to recognize 
you know, help find those parts of yourself that help you formulate what your own artistic DNA is. But it's it's not to be it doesn't make sense to make it again, you know, or to. So, yeah, they were. So, yeah, like Artemisia Velasquez, Rembrandt, Adnerjum, especially Bill Bartlett. All of those are 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 inspirations. Andy Wyeth, especially because they are considered to be in the, the genre of American realism. And that's that's where I decided to place my work, in a sense, in relation to those to those mm-hmm. painters and paintings. No, that was uh, that that got there. I mean, it's interesting that you describe it that way because I mean, as much as anybody painting in America now, your paintings are identifiably yours. I mean, you can spot a Sherald from across a gallery at a hundred paces and know who it is. They 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 are all you, and and that that really comes across. I want to ask about two details in two paintings. Your paintings are. F- Often you, you, you embed, if you will, uh, details in, in the textiles or in the clothes people wear or their hats in your paintings. First, Grand Dame Queenie, she's holding a, uh, a teacup or a coffee cup, and there is a figure, a silhouette on the teacup. Who and why? See, I mean, that, that painting was, was like, like research, which like most of them are not, you know, in response to the images of blacks in the European Renaissance. So I think... A show that was at the Walters about a decade ago. Right. I, be, I was thinking about the dandy. My friend, Chantrell Lewis, who's in one of my paintings, actually, she was uh, traveling an exhibition of photographs that were speaking to that. And so, you know, the history of that started to become relevant. And so for me, I think the dressing up, but then still not having the the status of, you know, I think in, in England, they dressed their slaves, you know, to a T, but they were still slaves. So I think it was, I believe that was the reason why. And in the All-American, the painting of the young man with the American flag-ish shirt and cowboy hat, what's going on with his belt buckle? What's on it and, and why? What is on it? I think it's a, it's a horse. A gold horse. A gold horse, on yeah. On a silver ground, on a, on a kind of mottled silver, silver ground. Yeah, he. So that photograph again. That that model is actually the same model that's in Boy with No Past. I shot them all the same day, and they were they all in all of them. He had on a white shirt and black pants, and he didn't have a belt on. So I had to figure out what the belt was going to be. And being that he had on a cowboy hat and a flag shirt, I thought something with a horse would be would would like hit the nail on the head. So. Um, I found a really beautiful belt buckle and painted it onto his jeans. <laughs> I, I love that it makes him a cowboy. And, and you know, cowboys, probably thanks to Marlboro ads and, and other things, you know, Westerns, we think of as being quintessentially white Americans, um, kind of southern frontier white Americans, whereas the history of, of the cowboy is, is not at all white. The history of the cowboy in the United States comes from the Mexican vaquero tradition, right? And so I, just that the combination of the belt buckle and his hat points to the complication of history and, and, and really comes alive for me. I want to wrap up with a couple of questions about you in your art or not. You did a great, loose, breezy, smart interview with Joan Cox of Be More Art in 2012. And in that interview, you mentioned making bald-headed paintings of yourself, which you referenced at the beginning of our chat. 
and you referenced that you wanted to or were working on a painting uh, uh, that was a self-portrait of yourself as the Tin Man. First, did you ever do the Tin Man? No. <laughs> <laughs> and and do those bald-headed paintings of yourself still exist? Have you have you done self-portrait since? No, I mean they do still exist unfortunately hanging in the homes of people that were like crazy enough to pay like $1500 for them when I was in grad school. But um I do want to make a self-portrait. I don't know when it's going to happen. I have a hard time figuring out who I would be. And I guess maybe the answer is I just need to be myself. I do want to paint myself, my dog, August Wilson. That's your, that's your, that's your dog's name. Yeah. I just, I don't, I don't know when it's going to happen, but it, it, it eventually will. It'll probably be a, a, a few years from now, I think. You have an extraordinary life story away from the studio. Um, I won't recap it all here. We'll have a link to a Kyle Swenson Washington Post story that lays out a part of your health and recovery history. But in short, while preparing for a triathlon, you learned that you were living with cardiomyopathy, a form of heart disease. A heart transplant later became necessary. And in 2012, you received a new heart from a donor who was the victim of an opioid, I always have a hard time with that word, overdose, and you didn't paint for a year. So long story short, do you think of yourself as having made a painting or paintings that refer to any of that experience? No. I mean, the Tin Man painting would have been, but it it obviously would have been a bad idea. You know, I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know. Like, you, I've, I've seen artists who go through things and then they make work about those things, and it's like, that's not going to pay the bills. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it's some things are meant for journals and maybe a documentary, but not everything is meant to be a painting. And I don't really feel like that was meant to be a painting, and nor was it something that I wanted to continue to live through my work. You know, it's like once it it happened, Kristen, my donor, and I are doing very well, but that story is also connected to the death of my brother who died two weeks prior to my heart in a different hospital in a different state, you know? So I just prefer to let to let her rest in peace in that sense. And also out of respect for her family, I think, you know, her mom called me one day and it was like, you know, the foundation will ask you, that does the procurement will ask you to like, you know, do talks and fundraisers and things like that. And I think she just reached a point where she was like, you know, Kristen needs to rest in peace. And that means that, you know, that, that, needs, that needs to happen for you too. You know, so that was my... I got off the hook from like having to do those things and feeling like you should, you know, post transplant, but there's other ways to, to give back that don't require you rehashing your story in front of an audience of people, you know, a few times a year. Finally, you've obviously done a portrait of one extraordinarily famous historical figure, the former first lady, Michelle Obama. Are there, or do you think about there being other recognizable humans of prominence in your paintings or is that not a direction that appeals to you yeah it's not really a direction that appeals to me i mean there's obviously like people that i won't turn down like there was some discussion about desmond tutu but then it never happened because he's been very ill and so it was no way for me to to get there to photograph him like they just stopped accepting visitors but I mean, if they fit into my world, yeah, that's one thing. But for the most part, no. I think like before, before I was picked for the portrait, I would have been painting 
somebody who the National Portrait Gallery wanted in their collection, because that's mm-hmm. what happens once you win the portrait competition. But in my mind, I had um, Serena Williams. And I've always, for some weird reason, wanted to paint Samuel Jackson. But I feel like those are the only two that pop in my head as like people that I would that I would consider because it's you know for me it's really not about like it's really about something bigger than that and so there's a million images of of celebrities that I don't necessarily want to mind to be one of them. As a tennis fan, I kind of feel like there's nothing bigger than Serena. So yeah, that, I already had the I had the painting planned out and everything. It was like I was like ready to do it. I just knew that that was going to be the person. She was going to be the person. Well, I, I, I can hope we get that one someday. <laughs> Amy Sherald, thanks so much. Thank you. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is the only venue for the exhibition Vincent Van Gogh, His Life and Art. Portraits, landscapes, and still lifes drawn primarily from the collections of the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and the Kroller-Muller Museum in Otterlo chronicle Van Gogh's evolution as an artist. Opening March 10th. Visit mfah.org slash Van Gogh for more. On February 28th at the Getty Center, here's Spelman College President Mary Schmidt Campbell discuss her biography of the late Romare Bearden, a renowned 20th century African-American artist whose work explores universal themes through the celebration of African-American culture. A book signing follows this free talk. Learn more at getty.edu slash 360. Welcome back. Next up, Metropolitan Museum of Art curator Iria Candela, who joins me to discuss Lucio Fontana on the Threshold, a retrospective of the Argentine-Italian artist at the Met. The exhibition is primarily on view at the Met Breuer, but Fontana environments are also on view at the Met's Fifth Avenue building and at El Museo del Barrio. The catalog for the exhibition was published by the Met and is distributed by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for $42. Iria Candela, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Tyler. I'm pleased to be here with you. As you note right away in your catalog essay, and is, and is really hard to miss in the show, Lucio Fontana was 51 years old before he first used a canvas in 1949. The first couple galleries of the show show us what, what he was doing before then, and we'll come back to those. But why, at 51, did he suddenly decide to turn to canvas? It has to do, uh, of course, with whatever Fontana had been making until then. When you look back and explore and study his early practice in sculpture, you already realize that he was very much looking for collapsing somehow distinction between uh, traditional mediums. I mean, we're talking about sculpture, painting, and ceramics, no? So painting was very much already in his mind when he used to actually paint the majority of his uh, earlier sculptures. When you see figures made in gesso, uh, but also small ceramic pieces, he painted them in colors. So painting was already uh, in his mind early on. And then the reason he finally decides to start using canvases as you know as a, a preferred medium has to do with uh, a theoretical or conceptual jump in his career when he defined his concept of spatialism, by which spatialism he meant that all all the arts should be integrated, and uh, and that's why basically he starts using a canvas as another mean. A little less than half of your show 
is Fontana's work as a sculptor from, from 1931 to 1949. First, to address a void, what of his work and knowledge of his work did we lose during World War II? If, that the show presents pretty much a selection of sculptures made between the 30s and the 40s. So in the during the Second World War, Fontana is actually at work in, in Argentina, first in Rosario, making a lot of commissions. Uh, he always needed to to work on those just to basically be able to make his life. And then he's still dying, doing the sculptures. Uh, he's doing well in Argentina. Then he settles uh, in Buenos Aires in 1943. Uh, he starts also teaching a lot in two different schools, but he keeps doing his art. And, and some examples of, of that moment are also in the exhibition. For example, La Silla Barroca or a, a portrait of a woman called La Morocha. Was there work of his that was in Italy and destroyed in the war? Yes, there was a lot of works that in his studio that were destroyed during the bombings of, of, of Milano, yes. Do we, do we know what that work was, looked like, or, or is it just completely lost? Yeah, some works were lost, but nonetheless, many of other of his works from that, those years survive, and some of them are, are, are part of the exhibition. So when does he go to Argentina and why? We have to just basically... Remember that uh, Fontana was born in Rosario, in Santa Fe, in Argentina, in 1899. He was the son of an Italian immigrant, and the and her ma- his mother was second-generation Italian immigrant. And then he spends early childhood in in Rosario, and then goes to study as a child to Italy a few years. He spends First World War in Italy, fighting uh, with Italian military. And then in the 20s, goes back to his father to Rosario and uh, starts working with him on a business that the father had called uh, Fontana and Scarabelli. Basically made a business uh, by uh, making commissions and providing funerary tombs and sculptures for the cemeteries in the city. And then in the 30s, Fontana, because he wanted to become an artist, you know, make his own name as an artist, went back to Milan to uh, study at the Academia di Brera and spends basically the 30s uh, pretty much uh, in Italy before going back to Argentina in the late 30s. So we see Fontana again living a substantial period of his life during the early 40s and mid 40s in uh, between Rosario and Buenos Aires, uh, which are, as I define in my essay and exhibition, definitive moments for him in his, you know, in the development of his artistic vision and, uh, and ideas. Yeah. How, how so? How was that? You know, what, what did he take there and, and what did he take from his time there and, and, and how did it inform the work thereafter? Well, in the, for example, in the, in the 20s, first working with his father, okay, he learns easily and quickly uh, what the art uh, business is about. He works on commissions. He's an artist that has to make his own living by working, uh, you know, on this type of, of, of art uh, somehow and supplying uh, decorative arts and, and sculptures for cemeteries. And he learns somehow the business. He starts to differentiate what it is to be and, you know, what, what is uh, decorative arts or a functional art object from an, an, an artwork considered a fine art. It's also a moment when he's making sculptures that have to do with this kind of Catholic sentiment that are looking back at uh, our history. If you think of Etruscan art and Etruscan sarcophagies, you see many of these resemblance in, in his earlier sculptures. And that's a very important moment. He also decides then being in Rosario to become an artist. And, uh, and that was a moment also in which he is already making exhibitions of his, of his art in the city. 
And then in the 40s is an also another very important moment because he's in Buenos Aires engaging with the seminal abstract avant-garde groups in the city. One was called uh, the Madi, the Madi group, that basically was experimenting with the legacies of geometric abstraction by uh, including uh, shape paintings and also new technologies on their art, uh, like neon, for example. Let's not forget that Fontana was one of the first artists to use neon light in his art. And that is due mainly uh, for the fact that he was uh, part of this uh, moment in Buenos Aires in the 40s um, with artists like Julia Kosice, who was the first artist, uh, arguably, that used neon in Argentina. So there is the moment also when Fontana writes, uh, co-writes the White Manifesto with his students in the Escuela de Bellas Artes in Buenos Aires that basically sets up his theories of spatialism. That's happening in Buenos Aires in 1946. So it's important, as I uh, was one of my goals with this exhibition, is to highlight this transatlantic biography between Argentina and Italy uh, that Fontana experimented as really key and, and uh, for his development as an artist. There are some great pictures in the catalog of, of neon works in Milan, of several neon works uh, in Milan. One of my favorite sculptures in the show, probably because it's pretty art history soaked, is a 1947 sculpture titled Battle. Was Fontana's interest in the subject entirely kind of a callback to Renaissance art history and, and Renaissance friezes, or was he interested in a battle scene for other perhaps contemporary reasons? Well, you wouldn't be able to say exactly, but definitely uh, Fontana, especially in those very early years, was clearly influenced by the art history. I mean, from Etruscan art to uh, Byzantine to Renaissance to the Baroque, he digested and really explored all these uh, old styles and genres and themes in his uh, sculptures. Battle is a very nice example of a kind of classical battle scene. But what Fontana is, for example, making here, which is different from traditions, is that on the one hand, he is, as you can clearly see when you look at the work, is that uh, this is a scene battle of, of a battle, right? But somehow the image is already so contorted in terms of how agitated the composition is, how Fontana is using the material, the clay, to create these uh, forms, that they already look like something uh, more of a coral reef, really. You have a, uh, a sense that they are a sculpture that can be a, figu a figurative sculpture, but it's also an abstraction at the same time. That's something that Fontana liked uh, very clearly to experiment in those years, you know, the distinction between figuration and abstraction. And then another key aspect of this beautiful work is that, as Fontana did with many of his uh, ceramics, he's painting, he's painting this ceramic and adding this very glossy varnish. And Fontana also at the time was very keen to explore this idea of collapsing distinctions between mediums. This work is pretty much a sculpture and a painting and a ceramic at the same time. No? Yes, yes. And it really, even though it's representational and projects into the room, really sets up the the uh, the spatial concept works that come in, in just a couple of years, especially the ones in, in clay. When it comes to Fontana stabbing or slashing artworks, and so whether they're on canvas or not, where does he turn first? Does he start exploring that penetrating of the picture plane, as it were, even though I guess with sculpture you don't really have that? <laughs> does, he first, does he first do that in clay, or does he, does he first do that in canvas? Well, that's actually one of the purposes of the show was that the, the viewers can appreciate how much of this experimentation, right, 
happen already in his early sculptures. When you look at some of them, for example, the ones that have the theme of uh, bottom of the sea, there's one uh, particular sculpture where you see the fishes, for instance, right? You can see already that the reason that Fontana had predilection for soft materials like clay or plaster is precisely because he could model them with his hands, you know, to create the forms, and then also use tools to make these incisions, to make marks on them. And you can see many of these earlier pieces, somehow prefigurations of those cuts or those holes. You can see very clearly that on, on, the, on the ceramic of the feast, for instance, but then many others in, in the show. And, and that's precisely this lineage, right? Or the genealogy of the cats had to be understood within the context of his earlier practice. And for example, you also have a beautiful work uh, he's been added on the, on the first gallery, which is this plaster uh, panel uh, hanging on the wall. It's one of his first very early abstract pieces. But basically you can see him making incisions on, on the surface of the plaster. He's already somehow making a very deep incision on the surface, scratching the surface. And that's something that he later does on his paintings. I think you're describing incised panel from 1932. Yeah, which is 20 years, almost 20 years before, say, the bread recalling spatial concept pieces, which which is is kind of a, a I mean, you know, that's an idea that, that must have gone to sleep for a long time before before waking back up. In In... Some of the works he's, I, I like your word better than mine, perforating surfaces, whether it's clay or canvas, and in others, in, and in both clay and canvas, he's slashing them. Do you think of the perforations and the slashes as different expressions of the same idea, or or are they really different things? I would say they are pretty much the same gesture in the sense that I see his uh, both his buchi, the holes, right, as he called them buchi in Italian, and also the tali, which are the cats, as part of this same kind of sculptural gesture. He wanted somehow to explore the, uh, the limits of the painting to work with activating the picture plane by perforating those surfaces. But then, of course, the result, you know, of one or the other are different in terms of what the, the format is being presented to the viewer, no? I think in the cuts is uh, very more evident, it's more evident on the cuts how he's opening up this form, which is this cut, which becomes a space, right, enclosing itself. And, uh, and somehow they really resemble this uh, new space, this new dimension that he was too, so keen to conquer. There are a number of works in the show onto which Fontana has has placed or glued Murano glass. He hasn't glued it in kind of, you know, that's not a great verb in this instance, but that there is Murano glass on the surface of the artwork and there is glue that holds it there. <laughs> what about adding things onto canvas, especially glass? What about that interested him? Those paintings that have that incorporate pieces of, of Murano glass, these fragments of glass, have to be also understood in relationship to the to the puncture paintings you just mentioned earlier, the buki, the holes, because the actual origin of of the buki of the of the holes paintings were meant for the artist to use as screens through which electric light would be would be projected for the somehow for the the transmission exactly the word the transmission the, the, so the bookie basically were meant as screens that were pierced for the transmission of electric light 
they were like objects that you would just handle and you know and put high on on the space and and see how light would trans be transmitted through those holes and then projected onto another world. That was the origin and the first intention of those holes. No? And of course, it was kind of this sabotage of, of the surface of the painting. And then uh, later on in the mid 50s is when he starts uh, introducing the application of uh, fragments of Murano glass. And basically they follow the same kind of purpose. Uh, it's very interesting to experience them in the flesh and, and probably you've seen them when you were in the exhibition. On the one hand, those paintings have perforations and they bring you inside, right, inwards, inside the painting. And then the reflections of the external light have on those uh, fragments of glass makes these reflections outside and somehow project the painting forward onto the space of the viewer. So it's like an inward and, you know, and forward sort of play there that Fontana is very much exploring and and. And, and trying to create in this purpose or in his quest to, to work with the three-dimensionality of the painting, to make painting be an object that occupies, you know, the real, real space and, and somehow interacts with our real uh, environment. That's especially true of a white canvas work from 1955 that has blue and, I don't know, kind of off-white, slightly orangish glass on it um, and then in addition to the color and the projection of the glass the, the glue is a, a kind of a tangible third surface there yeah those were those were those were some of my favorite works in the show we've both mentioned the picture plane a couple times without kind of really talking about it you know with decades of of art historical research and response to to modernism i think a lot of us just kind of talk about how fontana is the result of you know several decades of painters pushing things up against the picture plane in their paintings, and then Fontana finally literally breaks through the, the the picture plane. And of course, there are a number of experiments, including one by Fontana's friend, I guess, Eve Klein, that kind of play with the kind of play with. There's a great picture of Klein and Fontana together in the catalog. <laughs> so there are a lot of artists or, and experiments that are going on that are that are playing with this kind of penetration or jump into the void metaphor. Did, do we know if Fontana thought of what he was doing as a specific assault on the picture plane and breaking through it the way we think of it? Yes, I think, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, uh, debate on the time. You mentioned if Klein, for instance, is a very important moment. Uh, in 1957, if Klein presents in Paris for the first time his famous blue monochrome paintings and Fontana gets to see and it was actually after pretty much his, his influence, the, the influence of those paintings, that he turns to do more sort of monochromatic paintings, more flat, impersonal paintings that don't have so much this kind of layer and, uh, of materiality that the previous paintings had. During the 50s, Fontana had been making these works that we just discussed using, you know, Murano glass fragments, paintings with heavy impasto that work a lot with his materiality, the surface creating uh, reliefs, you know, out of those paintings that were very much in tune the lingua franca of informalism, you know, art informal in Europe on those years. And it was Eastklein, one of the artists who broke that kind of movement somehow in Europe, and, and somehow Fontana followed, and, and his cats uh, had to be understand, had to be understood, have to be understood in, in, in that context, which is also a key, um, it's also an important moment in post-war Europe, 
where things are starting to change after the more kind of existentialist sort of mood, you know, that many artists, so many artists express on the art because of the effect of the war and the post-war, no? And things are starting to change, and the early 60s are, are, are something else. It's a lot of new uh, thinking and new concepts in art proliferated in Europe those years. So Fontana was there. He was very much a witness. Uh, he used to travel a lot. He used to go to Paris. He used to go to Paris a lot. And in a way, his cuts are a result of that moment of rethinking where art would go from the 60s onwards, which is represented by the famous photo of Leaping to the Void, as you know. In the early 1960s, Fontana both begins to make works out of metal and works on canvas, some of which were gold, such as one that's um, reproduced in the catalog titled Venice Was All in Gold. Why does Fontana turn toward metal as a, a construct? And then what do you think his interest might have been in, in works that were gold, in, make, in making works that were gold? First of all, throughout the show also and in the catalog, I try to make visible also and, and that the fact that Fontana since very early on, actually, also during his time as a sculptor, uh, was really fascinated by the use of gold and gilding in our history, right? As a kind of a very symbolic sort of color, if you wish, that summarized, you know, divinities or mystical feelings, if you wish. There is a sculpture in the show at the beginning, which is a portrait of Teresita made with golden tessella, which is a mosaic that very much resembles a Byzantine art. But then from then onwards, he uses golden, he many times paints golden or paints gold his figures from early on. There are more, more out there that uh, show his use of, of golden. Actually, another sculpture in the show, the bronze, that opens the exhibition, you recall, the Signorita Seduta, Signora Seduta, used also, you know, painted gold. So that's something that pervades and is very constant in his practice. There are paintings from the 50s in which he uses gold paint and also silver paint and also metals, a couple of examples. One is in the exhibition also from 1950. And then, interestingly, in 1961, when he comes the first time to New York, Michel Tapier, who was a famous art critic, invites him to do an exhibition at the Martha Jackson Gallery. He comes to the city and, of course, who doesn't, was fascinated by the New York skyscrapers and the skyscraper. And he really loves the buildings and the way the city, you know, somehow all these reflections on, on, the, on the buildings and, and the materials and the metals. It is at that time that he starts using metals such as copper or aluminum in, in his artworks. There is a beautiful one that is included in the exhibition, which is a very large scale, which, in which he still, you know, does all the same kind of, apply the same kind of techniques of a scratching, of cutting through the surfaces. And here, more than any, any, any other works before, you can see how he was interested again in uh, emphasizing the reflective potential, no? the specular qualities of the metals in, in how much the light of the environment or of the gallery reflect on their surfaces and, and go back to, to the viewer. Or, or especially here, how the, um, the, the viewer itself is being reflected on the sort of kind of a mirror surface no? of, of, of the works. In the catalog, you reproduced one of Fontana's gold-colored works with um, a Fra Angelico crucifixion in which blood is spurting from the wound on Christ's side. 
One of the things about the slashes on the gold or metal Fontanas is that they, they almost seem to, and maybe, I guess this is the question, they, they remind me of, of, of the Doubting Thomas story and the presentation of Doubting Thomas in, in art history. Thomas, of course, was the disciple who, who, who doubted Christ's reality and who uh, Christ asked to touch the wound if they, you know, to, 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 to prove that it was real in an effort to prove to Thomas that it was real. Do we know if Fontana was, was interested in that story, if he jumped off from it, and if he was interested in the suggestion of tactility that the slashes kind of carry, carry within themselves? I don't have, I haven't seen, I haven't read any reference to St. Thomas, but I wonder, of course, he was probably well-versed in, you know, in, uh, in Catholic iconography and, and all the kind of the, the, the somehow Catholic themes is a subject for further investigation, for sure, as to how much somehow the cuts or the use of uh, gold, if I understood your question correctly, might refer to the noli metangere or, you know, or the touch of the body of Christ. Is that what you ask? Well, I mean, that or, you know, there's a temptation you know, in the present day also to to touch those slashes. I mean, I'm not suggesting anybody do it. I've never done it. You know, there's plexi in the show to keep us from doing it, all the usual disclaimers. But it's hard not to think of both the perforations and the slashes as as tactile temptation to a viewer. Yes, that's a very, a very interesting observation. Of course, they are very suggestive in that regard. They are also, let's not forget, just uh, signs of the the artist's own performative act of, you know, of, of touching them to make the slashes. Not many people know, actually, that Fontana's practice uh, in doing the cuts involved, actually, the use of his own, own hands. He would just go about to make them by, of course, using a, a, a Stanley knife to open up the cuts. But then once the painting was dried, he would use his hands to, to give form to the slashes and the cuts the way he wanted, you know, to make them more inward, more open, less, less open, etc., etc., and as if he was somehow modeling, right? Again, he was just making a sculpture with his hands. So there's a lot of that there. I mean, that's why this uh, reference to tactility is, is, of course, very present, yes. Finally, the environments that, that he built we talked about the neons earlier, and I think it's pretty visually easy to understand the relationship between the neon work and Fontana's you know, work on canvas, for example. The spatial environments, maybe it's a little harder to understand how they fit into the oeuvre. Are, are the spatial environments, do you think of them in the context of the sculpture and the canvas and the metal work, or do you in your approach to them, think of them as just something totally, completely different? Well, I actually see them very much in context to this search for a new space, a new dimension that somehow the paintings were suggesting. No, uh, Let's not forget that uh, this very radical gesture of sabotaging the painting, you know, the surface of the painting by rupturing the space of the picture plane. Fontana was basically presenting the viewer with this form, which was a void. It was literally a void that was made of space, no? That's the title somehow of the exhibition on the threshold is kind of loose reference to that idea that uh, you enter this new space that, that the cats are offering you. And 
in his practice on environments and installations, he somehow makes, you know, a, a more elaborated project of this idea of entering into a new space with, with his, these rooms or corridors that were in which he used color and he used light to create certain effects on, on, your, on the way you were experiencing them or viewing them. Iria Candela, thanks so much for speaking with me. Oh, thank you very much for this interview. Really a pleasure. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.